I am a member of the club no one wants to join, the Fellowship of the Bereaved. In this new fellowship, I have found a strange and unexpected solace. Maybe it's because of the wordless understanding that exists in this club, or perhaps it's because when I have had words, they have been received graciously, without deflection or averted glance. Other bereaved people make no effort to steal or hide away from grief. Most of my friends and acquaintances yearn to alleviate my sorrow. Although they mean well, I find their impulse threatening and dismissive. Their desire is born not of ill will, but of ignorance, an ignorance for which they should thank God. Raw grief is my most intimate and living connection to my dead husband. Attempts to soothe it can feel like cruel efforts to wrench from me what little of him remains in my grasp. Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Bill Fladeris. And I'm Karen Stiller. And what you just heard was the first two paragraphs of an article called Companionship and Grief, written by a Vancouver writer named Susie Colby. We had Susie record that article for you, which we do sometimes on the Faith Today podcast, because we thought it was such a beautiful and poignant reflection on what grief is like. And some people may know that I have a very personal connection with that now. I I lost my husband uh, this year very unexpectedly and young. And as Bill and I have sorted through articles and podcasts, we thought it would be wonderful to have Susie read that article. But Bill, what ended up happening, which we didn't actually plan, was Susie and I had a sort of two widows talking conversation, which ended up being pretty rich and important and beautiful for me, at least. So we're actually going to start this podcast with that conversation and then segue into Susie reading the article. So it's a bit different. Yeah, and I think that's great. I'm so glad we did this. I bumped into a bunch of people when that article first came out who were passing it around to others to say, you should read this. It's the best thing I've read on grief or you know losing a partner and what to do next. And so that's very encouraging. And it was also recently got an award as excellent writing from the Canadian Christian Communicators Association. So that just sort of vindicated what we already knew from firsthand experience. Absolutely. So we hope that this, the conversation and the article will resonate with people, whether you are someone who has experienced grief or someone walking alongside someone who's grieving. And we hope this will be something beneficial to you. Susie, thank you so much for coming back to Faith Today and reading for us an article that you wrote about a year into your grief journey and a bit of time ago. And I'm wondering... What was it like for you to read that article, Susie? It's such a reminder of the hollow experience of grief. Some of the things I wrote about, I've since experienced again repeatedly. Uh, For example, I wrote about how much I would want people to enter grief with me. And recently I had an experience where some good friends really entered into grief with me. And it was both hard and so validating and refreshing. So it was nice to read what I longed for and see how it had been fulfilled. Oh, I'm glad. As an editor who works on a bunch of different kinds of articles, I pride myself on this, that I can edit anything, because editing is about helping the writer shine, finding the heart of a piece, 
So I don't need to technically understand the topic very deeply, but now I do. When I was your editor for this piece, my husband was alive, and now my husband has died. And that was an unexpected death, a very early death. And when I went back and read this article, I had a deep sense of knowing and yeah, now I get it. I'm, I am now part of the club too, Susie. And I understand just exactly what you mean by that. And I want to say that I agree with you that there is a deep comfort in connecting with other bereaved people because there is a knowing of something that you hope that you will never be part of this club. But of course, most of us will be. Yes. <laughs> Tell me more about that part of it, that how the bereaved can help the bereaved even. I notice I feel a strong compulsion when I hear of somebody's loss, particularly the death of a spouse, but really any close death. I feel a compulsion, a desire to come close, not to bring anything in particular, but just to come and be in that empty space with the other person. At the same time... Yeah, well, you, you reached out to me really quickly, <laughs> and I appreciated that, Susie. And, and some people don't want that, right? Because for some people, it's the space they need. But I have felt myself that more people are ready to give me space than to give me companionship. And so I do want to offer companionship as best as I'm able. And then I'm not hurt if it's not wanted. That's fine too. Everybody, everybody walks this path differently and I really have a deeper respect than ever for that as well. That is so true what you just said about people are, <laughs> I, I have found also, and I am fairly fresh into this journey as we record this conversation, that the offering of space, the respecting of privacy has been a little too much for me. Absolutely. I, I have said to people, please, please don't leave me alone. I, I, I didn't ask to be left Absolutely. alone. I, I don't want my privacy. Yes. So many times people have said to me, well, I wanted to give you space. And I think, why did you want that? I did not ask for it. And yeah. my more judgmental self thinks, no, 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 you wanted the space from this tragedy, uh, which I understand, but I don't get to make that choice. And so I feel really reassured when people are willing to enter it with me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is something I have started to realize is how inconvenient I can yes. be to people. And I completely understand because I now look back on times when I was, you know, close to grief, like adjacent to someone suffering. And I understand the impulse to like, turn around and go down the other aisle in the grocery store because we are work. Yes, we are a lot of work for people. Yes. And I have sometimes felt kind of offended by the passages in scripture that talk about caring for the widows. I feel a little objectified by that. I'm not <laughs> I'm not the measure of somebody's faithfulness or good Christian virtue. But that inconvenience is really a reality. I um, attended an event with my daughter not too long ago. And after we came home, she asked me, and she's an adult, she asked me, Mom, why are people afraid of you? 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it was so validating because I feel that, but then I think, am I just a little bit paranoid or whatever? So I asked a colleague afterwards, I repeated the interaction and asked her what she thought about that. And she said, oh, Susie, people aren't afraid of you. They're afraid of death. And I thought, yeah, oh, great. Yeah, so now yeah. <laughs> I am a representative of that thing of which people are afraid. But, you know, we don't get to choose. Mm -hmm. Here we are. And there are so many people who are really good at this work of coming alongside and entering. And, and I thought your article and what you write about touches on that very beautifully, too, that this idea of companionship and what companionship looks like in this. And I really, really appreciated that. And because in the end, uh, I think, I think I'm starting to realize that we actually don't need a hundred people. You know, we, we might need three or four people who are really good at being a companion. What, what do you think of that, Susie? I think that's true because a few people is much less complicated <laughs> to uh, engage than many, many people. And also, I think we need people in different ways. So in addition to those two or three people who are really good at being consistent companions, I also appreciate when I get a text from someone with a photograph of Steve from years ago and they say, this just popped up in my feed, or I'm doing something and it makes me think of Steve. I love the reminders that other people are thinking about Steve too. And that doesn't need to be somebody who's close in all the time, but what I would want people to know is if you think of someone who is gone, tell the person who is close to them, who feels their loss the most. Because I get a real kick out of getting an old picture of Steve popping up on my phone. That's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. The other thing I would say is I have been surprised at how much it's my old friends from way long ago with whom I find greater solace. And I think that's because in a season when I'm having such a hard time knowing myself, being around people who know me well is super helpful. That said, yeah. I have a few new friends who have become kind of honorary old friends just by behaving in that familiar and loving way with me. Oh, that's beautiful. I really resonate with the tell me your stories about my husband part because I have sometimes felt like people were avoiding bringing him up or avoiding showing their grief and sorrow to me. And I have said to them, your grief is a comfort to me. I am reminded how beloved my husband was and how wide his impact and how deep the loss. And so it's, it's actually a comfort to have someone come up and say, you know, I'm so sorry, and have them start to cry. Like, I, I don't mind that. I, I'm, please cry for my husband. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it, it helps me. It helps me too. Yeah. Sometimes they even tell me things I didn't know, which is really fun. Hmm. It's a way of his coming back to me. Yeah, I get that. So Susie, let's help people. <laughs> let's help people help people. Let's help people help people. <laughs> so I think your article is full of good guidance and insight. Like to me, your article was like, look inside my broken heart. This is what is going on. Like it's so descriptive and we just don't see a lot of 
I think, writing at that sort of point in your grief journey. Your husband was gone a year or so when you started to write that article. And I think it's a beautiful glimpse into the rawness, but also, you know, the hints of healing. Like you, there's hope in your article. You're not all alone. You're, you're talking about your companions and the companionship of grief. So I'm not going to boil this down to three top tips, but (laughs) in a way I would like to like help someone who wants to be a companion. Two things come to mind right away. One is you're not going to make the person sadder. I can't believe how many people have said to me that they, you know, preface something with, well, I didn't want to make you sadder. And so I didn't X, Y, and Z. It's like, I'm sorry, but you do not have the power to make me sadder. I'm as sad as I'm going to be. And <laughs> your puny sorrow yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know, it's not going to make it worse. So mm-hmm. my first tip would be have no fear that you're going to make it worse. I think that's true. At least that's true for yeah. me. Oh, I know. I have said those exact words to people. I have said, you can't make it worse. You're probably not going to make it better. Exactly. <laughs> Just tell me what you want to tell me. It's well, okay. right. And let's be real together because at least that sort of mm-hmm. gives me some ground to stand on rather than I'm in hiding, which is kind of the temptation mm-hmm. and even some of the pressure we feel in those situations where we find ourselves to be inconvenient. The second thing I would say is curiosity. It's okay to be curious. I'm sure people are wondering things all the time about me. Ask me. I would love to talk about it. Now, when people say to me, how are you? I respond invariably with that question is too vague. Ask me something specific. Both because it is too vague and also because it invites this idea that we're measuring how somebody is doing against some idealized way of being. And I think that is also an enemy to the grieving person, always having your well-being measured by everybody around you, being discussed. You know, you can just imagine how people, I saw Susie, how is she doing? That just seems irrelevant. I, I mean, I'm sure there are cases where one is doing poorly enough that intervention of caring friends in a concerted and team sort of way is, is good. So I'm not saying that. But in general... Please don't ask me to measure my well-being, you know. Ask me what I had for breakfast or ask me what I'm thinking about. Yesterday, a friend asked me, what is weighing most heavily on your heart today? That was an awesome question. You know, it could have been... That is a good question. Right. And, you know, it might have been a bad customer service interaction I had. You know, it might not have been grief over my husband, but what a great question. It invited me out in the open. Yeah, absolutely. I just had coffee today with a friend who has shown up consistently. But I noticed today that we weren't talking about my loss. And my husband's name did not come up unless I brought it up, which was fine. But I sensed there was more going on. And what I eventually said to her was, if I was sitting here with a severed arm and a severed leg, and you didn't mention it, I would think it was really weird. So I am severed (laughs) and it's okay for us to talk about it. I need you to talk about it with me. We can't ignore this together. And that just, 
broke open the conversation in a really good way because I know she loves me and I knew she wanted to help. I mean, she was having coffee with me. And so I know that the concern and the attentiveness was there. And what I learned there was that people who love us, want to help us, want to walk with us, sometimes they need us to just tell them. Yes. Right? Tell them. And like you said, th those questions, you could give them those questions. Just being honest is people want to help. Yes. Yes, they do. And for that, we're fortunate. Absolutely. What about the um, practical, you know, showing up of food and so on? Like, I don't know about you, Susie, but I'll never eat lasagna again. <laughs> we have a joke about lasagna in our family because of that. Really? Oh, yes. And we attributed it to my daughters being a vegetarian, that people would bring us lots of things, but they would always have a piece of vegetarian lasagna. And lasagna had been this bonding thing that she and I used to make together. And at one point she said to me, Mom, no more lasagna. I never want to see lasagna again. <laughs> so we gave it about a 12-month hiatus. And then we decided today's the day we are going to make lasagna together. And we made this beautiful vegetarian lasagna. Aww. It was sitting on the table in our kitchen and there was a knock on the door and I opened it and it was a young man I knew from the campus ministry carrying the world's biggest lasagna you've ever seen. No. And this was over a year later, but he had just had this impulse. And so my daughter, Lily, is like hiding the lasagna we made and we're saying thank you and bringing it in the house. And he left and we just cracked up because we just thought there is no escaping lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And you know what? That reminds me also of something I've started to say as, as within my family. We've talked about just how great it is when people just show up and it's God bless the people who barge yes. in, yes. you know, whether they're, they're carrying a lasagna or not, but thank God for the bargers. Thank God for the bargers. And I kind of have a happy association with lasagna because of all of all of this. But I will say another thing that's been really great for me is my husband was in a men's prayer group. And in those last weeks when we were doing different things, I somehow got into their texting loop. And those are the guys I call on when I have a house disaster that I can't figure out. And it's my men's group, you know. <laughs> uh, and I just really appreciate their help with everything from, you know, taxes to plumbing. And it's not that I couldn't figure some of those things out, but the burden to figure everything out is super great. And yes. I just need to know that there's other people who are willing to carry it with me. Yeah. And I've wondered now that I've hit the three mark, three year mark, whether there's some sort of statue of limitations upon, you know, the, the helpers I call upon. Uh, in fact, even this morning, I was trying to decide whether I can still ask for help with my leaky faucet. Uh, but I think if I asked them, the answer would probably be yes. You know, that is so funny to me that you would bring that up because tomorrow I have some church men coming over to do some home repairs for me and with me. And I had the exact same thought in my mind, Susie, as I made a list, I thought I was like racking my brain because, you know, there's got to be an expiry date to this help, mm -hmm. I was thinking. So I, I got to think of all the things. So it's good to hear that, that maybe that's not the case, that we can always ask for help. I'm getting good at asking for help. <laughs> yeah, no, we have to, right? We absolutely have to. And again, I come back to people want us to. 
I, I really believe that. I know that grief must have changed you deeply. I want, can you tell us a little bit and maybe, you know, give me and other people who are fresher into this new reality, some glimpse into some of the changes maybe we can expect or how have you, how are you better, Susie? (laughs) Well, my first answer was going to be, I swear a lot more, which may not be why I'm better, but I'm (laughs) pretty sure my kids think it's better, at least two of them. (laughs) Sure. Well, I think I'm less judgmental, although one of my friends might point out that I'm just judgmental about different things. So I should be careful before I say that. I hope I was compassionate before. I think I was. But if the definition of compassion is to suffer with, I have more suffering to bring to the compassion. I understand at a deeper level that people have different reasons for being the way they are, doing the things they do. Maybe I'm a little bit, just a tiny bit more courageous in entering other people's suffering. Although I will say, even having written about the value of barging in, I still find myself hesitating in the same ways that I've criticized. So, you know, step by step, I hope I'm getting better in that way. That's really helpful, Susie, because it does change you. Grief changes you, and it changes our friends, and it changes the whole world, really. I think it also is a challenge to my worldview. As I said in the article, which continues to be true, I do not lack confidence in the resurrection, but I think that I am really continuing to ask the question of what lasts. Mm. I'm in a writing class where we were asked to give 15 minutes of thought, this was just two days ago, to what we were writing about, and it hadn't occurred to me until then how much most of what I'm writing about these days is the juxtaposition of being present in the moment and eternity, and how do those things fit together. And I think that is probably something I will be wondering about, pondering, exploring for the rest of my life, and only in that great day will the answer become clear. Amen. Susie, I am so grateful to you for writing that article. I'm grateful that you and I share the fact that we had beautiful husbands, Steve and Brent, and that we can be better companions to other people eventually too. And and I know we share our gratitude for the people who come Mm -hmm. alongside really Mm -hmm. well and for all those who want to. Yes. (laughs) And try. I mean, God bless those who try too. God bless those who try. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, somebody will anonymously leave chocolate on my door. That happened this week. I don't know who it was. I don't know what inspired them or what kept them from knocking on the door. But I'm super happy to have the chocolate. God bless those who try. I am a member of the club no one wants to join. The Fellowship of the Bereaved. My husband, Steve who is InterVarsity Canada's Director of Missions, died in April of 2020 of esophageal cancer, only 14 months after he had been diagnosed. In this new fellowship, I have found a strange and unexpected solace. Maybe it's because of the wordless understanding that exists in this club 
or perhaps it's because when I have had words, they have been received graciously, without deflection or averted glance. Other bereaved people make no effort to steal or hide away from grief. Most of my friends and acquaintances yearn to alleviate my sorrow. Although they mean well, I find their impulse threatening and dismissive. Their desire is born not of ill will, but of ignorance, an ignorance for which they should thank God. Raw grief is my most intimate and living connection to my dead husband. Attempts to soothe it can feel like cruel efforts to wrench from me what little of him remains in my grasp. In my Christian communities, it seems more acceptable for me to respond to my friend's words of comfort with serenity or theology or faith-referencing aphorisms about where Steve is now and the anticipation of meeting him again. Those friends seem to imagine they can usher me to a more comfortable place with these assurances. But I need people to acknowledge the horrible reality I am experiencing before they try to lift me from it. Vancouver-based counselor Jeff Hayashi says it is, and I quote, the fear in our own hearts that compels us to locate or create certainty in others' hearts, however contrived that certainty might be. Those who intend to comfort need to ask themselves, is there a fear or insecurity driving my need to comfort? I think Jeff is right. Foisting unwelcome comfort on a grieving friend creates tension and may add another layer of grief because the bereaved may now feel even more alone, sensing distance in this friendship as well. When comfort is blithely or earnestly bestowed, I must make a choice, a choice to comply or to protest. Complying, although it often seems easier, leads to a kind of hiding which distances us. Distance and hiding mean a part of me remains unknown and held back. I become two selves, the high-functioning, cheerful-ish person getting stuff done, the person friends and acquaintances still enjoy and understand, and the woman inside yelling obscenities. The external person isn't fake, but she is only part of who I am. That woman inside is becoming less and less accessible to me. As time goes on, I am less aware of her presence. Externally, this looks like healing, and according to much of the literature on grief, healing seems to be the goal of grief processing. But the very idea of healing is hard for me. Here's Jeff Hayashi again. The minute we insert goal-setting as the pathway through grief, we are already off the mark, he says. It's about heart. It's about friendship. You see, grief work isn't about goals. I need my friends to acknowledge and welcome the bereaved me, too, rather than expect and hope for the return of the old Susie. In those long months after Steve's death, I was not hoping to be healed or to become stronger for having endured. I had been strong already. In middle school, my nickname was Tough Cookie. I am not new to grief. Grief is not new to me. When I was 12, my father was killed when his car was struck by a drunk driver. At that time, I was in a process of my faith becoming real in my own. After my dad died, we discovered a note written in his distinctive engineer's block printing taped inside his office desk drawer. My dad had written, This is not my life. This is my job. Christ is my life. What my dad had written was evidence of the awakening of faith my parents had been experiencing. My father's shocking and sudden death brought faith, his and my own, into sharp focus. Either what I had been saying I believed was true, and therefore ultimately all would be well, or it wasn't true and all was lost. By the time my husband Steve was diagnosed with incurable cancer, questions of life and death had been firmly resolved for me. Steve and I had been partners in ministry before we were married 
and we had spent over 30 years aiming together for the kingdom of God. We lived what French author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry wrote, Love does not consist of gazing at each other, but in looking outward together in the same direction. I love that quote. I continue to be confident in the resurrection, but there is a loud and insistent expectation in the church that this confidence would be a comfort in grief. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, says the Apostles' Creed. Steve and I had believed that together. Perhaps if I had lacked this confidence prior to Steve's death, a renewed or deepened confidence after would be comforting. However, that confidence in our brilliant future with Jesus doesn't make today easier. I wish I had a t-shirt with the words of C.S. Lewis printed on it. Don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. You see, life was exceedingly more enjoyable, fulfilling, meaningful, interesting, purposeful, humorous, and downright easier when Steve and I looked confidently forward to the resurrection together. There is a song we sing at church that includes the line, Death is a lie. I want to protest in the pews, or in the Zoom chat box. Sing that to me when I wake alone in my bed with Steve's ashes in his dresser nearby. Sing that when I get up to take the dog out. Sing it to me while I take the car to the mechanic, or mow the lawn, or wait on hold for 90 minutes for one more agent, every one of whom is sorry for my loss, to assist me in another of the endless death chores a widow must do. Bereaved people like me live in an ever-disappointing reality they had not anticipated, that is irreconcilable with the hopes and dreams they once shared with the person they have lost. Death is not a lie. The lie is that death has the last word. Death does not. But until that last word is spoken, death is real. We do not help those who grieve when we minimize death. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis wrote, It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or death doesn't matter. Let me go one step further than Lewis. I am completely impatient with those who say such silly things because, as Lewis continues, whatever happens has consequences and it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. Yes, bereaved people like me live in an ever-disappointing reality they had not anticipated that is irreconcilable with the hopes and dreams they once shared with the person they have lost. Reminders are everywhere. A customer service employee at Costco demanding a death certificate. Letters addressed to the deceased. Boxes that must be checked, widowed. And questions that will never be answered. From where do we keep the keys for? To what shall we do this weekend? What others mourn as one great loss, the absence of a beloved friend or colleague, is experienced by bereaved people as a relentless cascade of small and large losses. Inside jokes no longer shared, doubled chores and responsibilities, an empty spot at a table, skipped aisles at the grocery store, and returning to a dark house. Bereavement is defined as the severing of a significant relationship. To be bereaved is to be deprived of that relationship. I love the accuracy of the dictionary's description. I felt I had been severed by my husband's death, and I envied those whose wounds were more visible. I imagined tattooing bereaved on my forearm to mark Steve's absence beside me and make it visible to others. Steve's absence in my life and our family is itself a presence. His absence is our profound deprivation. I don't feel lonely. 
Lonely implies longing tinged with hope of union. Rather, I feel a deep aloneness, as if I were surrounded by vast, empty space. I walk streets, attend events, and participate in communities Steve and I once did together. To be in these places alone is to live a different, unfamiliar life. To navigate this space requires tremendous emotional work. The Christian community, when it fails to acknowledge losses and express curiosity, the Christian community, when it fails to acknowledge losses and express curiosity about what may be painful or awkward experiences, can impede this necessary work. We've de-skilled people when it comes to grieving, says Daniel Whitehead, CEO of Vancouver's Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. Daniel goes on, Many of us are disempowered from knowing how to process difficult things. We unknowingly create theologies so we don't have to deal with our own stuff, deal with our own pain. I think Daniel is right. This is a form of spiritual bypassing, a means of avoidance or repression, corrupting spiritual ideas or practices to avoid the emotional work required. Daniel points out that human flourishing is about relationships. When a relationship is severed, our grief isn't fixed or resolved by theological answers, even if those answers are true. Maybe we can look at grief in a more ancient way, he told me. Grief is there to be felt, and felt in an embodied way. We've lost that embodied way of grieving. And we tend to make people feel guilty when they do grieve, as if they are too much and their grief is too long and lasting. It's a double whammy. Daniel told me more. He told me that God welcomes our languishing. What if grief is not a problem, but a process? What if the community can benefit from allowing even joining in grief. Imagine if, instead of trying to lift us from our grief, our friends, unthreatened, joined us in it. What if they were curious about what might be discovered within grief? Imagine if, instead of having to choose between hanging out with old friends over dinner and games versus an evening of quiet melancholy, we could have both at the same time. Old friends, who were once our shared friends, attending to the absence of one whose love we all knew while eating meals we had once enjoyed together. Here is what companionship looks like. Companionship is speaking the dead person's name without awkwardness, asking for and telling stories with clear eyes and a twinkle rather than bowed heads. It is quoting the dead and arguing about the accuracy of the memory rather than silently deferring to the widowed and changing the subject. Companionship sounds like acknowledging what is truly awful, the endless paperwork and heartless processes required, the silence, the chores, washing and drying the dishes, the responsibility and challenge of making decisions alone, having to learn new ways to do everything, from budgeting to car maintenance to traveling, just when your capacity to learn and engage is at its lowest. Companionship is new habits of accompaniment, such as texting to report on whereabouts or shared errands. Text me when you get home, one friend said when I told her I had no reason to turn on my phone when the plane landed. Another friend texts whenever she goes to Costco, knowing I would welcome some discount brie. Finally, companionship and grief means allowing me my grief in whatever way I choose to hold it. To share in my grief requires my friends to embrace a discomfort they could otherwise avoid. In Miriam Taves' book, All My Puny Sorrows, narrator Yolandi's mother Lottie, 
who had lost so much, wisely observes, Letting go of grief is just as painful or even more painful than the grief itself. Please don't make me choose between my grief and our friendship. I prefer to have both. I've already lost too much. Our friendship will be deeper and more rewarding if you will hold this grief with me. Will you join me? Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.